live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to uh, this week's Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the hosts of the Water Zone. And we appreciate every Chris is making me laugh on the video screen. Uh, sorry for that. He, he he's the one guy that brightens my day. He makes me laugh almost every day, so I appreciate that from him. He's a, he's a good man. Anyway, welcome everybody. You're having uh, wonderful weather. I'm now in California, and uh, so I'm kind of enjoying the uh, lower temperature. Then I had in, in Arizona, which was in the hundreds, but um, we had some rain last week, pretty heavy rains. I heard you guys had that here. And uh, what what did you see different? I guess we're getting all, all your storms are coming coming uh, east. Yeah, it was great. We just uh, barely had a sprinkle, really, to be honest with you. But I'll tell you, Rob, it's great to have you back at the microphone, buddy. Uh, I love it. It's good. I had uh, You guys did a great show with uh, Mike Barron last week. And uh, um, I, again, I thank both of you for... And, and now, Chris, uh, for making the show a success, and we appreciate that. I appreciate that sincerely. I, I never wanted to be the star of the show, even though it's my, I was born a star. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, that's the legal name. But I, I never wanted to be even, even with Mike Barron. I, I didn't. I wanted him to be the uh, the straight guy I, and the smart guy. I just wanted to be the the idiot who kind of noodles up to everybody so thank you both chris's i do appreciate everything you you both of you've done and uh and and so chris welcome to the show i know you're in there me yeah yeah you're yeah, oh, yeah, okay. talking I to you sure if you were talking to the other chris man i wish i could have been there last week because then we would have been like chris's in like not stereo, but like surround sound. Yeah. Versus in surround sound. We would have been like really confused who was who, though, you know. Well, just get over but, like me and you're confused all the time. So it <laughs> I, and, you know, you know, my wife says, you know, take these, these pills for your memory. Yeah, but if I forget to take them, I, I don't remember to take them. That's the problem. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yes, well, how are you all doing tonight? Not a damn thing. Yeah, I can hear, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're having some fun out here in California. You know, mega drought is the word of the of the day. And uh, there's a, some uh, an article and some commentary that's come out in recent weeks where people have been asking, you know, where are the new dams? I believe it was in 2014, uh California voters uh, voted for Prop 1, which did, which provided money for a lot of different water projects. I think it was like a seven-point-something billion-dollar water bond. And a portion of that was set aside for water storage projects, both surface storage and groundwater storage. And so here we are now, 2021, what's that like? five, six years later, and we really don't have any new dams online. So people are kind of saying, well, why not? And there are really a number of reasons for it. And the most basic one is that 
the language of the water bond, this was a, um, a, a measure that was put on the ballot by the legislature versus, you know, a group of citizens or whatever. I don't know if they can do bond applications. But anyway, this was this is a proposition put on the ballot by the legislature. And they were actually negotiating the terms of this bond in 2009. And in 2009, there was uh, a lot of concern about the uh, Delta conveyance project. I think it might have been Cal Water Fix at the time. The the Delta Conveyance Project it has many different names and it sort of morphed through the years. Um, it didn't really address drought because at the time drought really wasn't in the mix. It uh, we were people the legislature was more focused on the Delta and in two thousand and nine the Delta Reform Act uh, which is a major piece of legislation that changed a lot of things in the Delta that passed. Uh, and this water bond was part of the, uh, in the package of uh, bills that passed, but they didn't put it on the ballot. They voted the whole off because shortly after it was, you know, shortly before it was going to go on the ballot, um, we had a lot of uh, economic problems. We had the budget deficit and all, and they just didn't feel that going, taking it to the voters at that time, that it would pass. So it was sort of shelved up until uh, 2014 when it went to the voters and it passed. But the language of the legislation did not change, really, um, from the, the what they had crafted in 2009. So there was a big discussion slash argument between the Democrats who are generally environmentally oriented and not in favor of dams and the Republicans who generally are in favor of dams. And so they hammered out this piece of legislation um, that is actually really specific and there were a lot of things in there, um, you know, the Money could only be used to fund public benefits of the project, which means that no dam would be completely paid for by taxpayers. The only portions of the dam of the um, portions of the cost of the project could be paid by the act. Only those portions they could deem to be providing public benefits. If the language of the act was more. You know, surface storage and groundwater storage, but the terms of the legislation and how they applied those public benefits did does make it very difficult for groundwater projects to to qualify because a groundwater recharge project it doesn't necessarily provide public benefits in terms like um, you know like recreation or or things like that um so it was it just in a way seemed to be biased in a sense towards surface water storage dams um so that uh that passed and so so what so what this means is these projects have the the california water commission was charged with 
distributing the funds, and they had very, very specific terms to distribute the funds to these uh, to these projects. And they also could not start dispersing money until I believe it was the end of 2016. So two years had to pass before they could even start to award the money. So that happened, uh, and, and that was to give projects a time to gather the necessary documentation together. So that did happen, and about, I believe it was eight projects were, were approved. Now, the other, so, the, so the, first, the first point I'm trying to make there is that per the terms of the legislation of the bonds, that the voters passed. No funds for storage could be dispersed until two years later. So, uh, so and, and only under very specific circumstances. Now, the other reason why, the other reasons why are, number one, dam projects take a long time to construct and build. You're generally moving a lot of earth, and Yes, you do have to satisfy environmental review documents, but you also have to figure out where you're going to get the dirt from, how you're going to make the project happen. You have to conduct a lot of engineering studies. So they're not, you, you don't build the dam overnight. You don't even build the dam in a year or two. These are, it generally takes about 10 years to get a dam, you know, to get the dam planned, constructed, and built in the most optimum time frame. And, you know, people might say, well, it's the environmental regulations. Well, okay, yes, but it's also taking the time to ensure that you're building a project that's going to be safe for the public. So you need to check your seismic issues. You need to do all those that geotechnical stuff because you need to make sure that what you're putting in isn't going to, you know, First and take out a lot of people and right. property. So, so there's that aspect of it. And then, you know, you really have if you really sit back and look at the history of California, there was a lot of dam building that went on since you know the Europeans or the you know people came here and started uh, you know developing the state back in 1850. And a lot, they build a lot of dams. There's like 1,200 dams in California. And then they stopped. So you might say, why did they stop? They didn't stop because they were out of money. They didn't stop because, you know, people didn't want water, because somehow people always wanted water. They stopped because they had kind of dammed up every suitable site in the state. As a matter of fact, Every river, with the exception of one, has a dam on it somewhere here in, in actually, I think it's two, I'm sorry, two rivers that don't have a dam. One of those would be the Sumnus River, in, which is up near Sacramento, and the other one is here, uh, right here in my hometown, the Santa Clara River. Uh, but this is very rare. All the other states' rivers have dams on them, and we've really maxed out the terrain in which we could put dams because they certainly would have continued. So the one major, so the major surface storage water, uh, surface storage projects that are being considered, uh, one of them is Sites Reservoir, which is up in Northern California. It's along the Sacramento River, 
I think it would still uh, be about a million acre feet, which is about roughly a quarter of the size of Shasta or Lake Oroville, um, about a third the size of Lake Oroville. But it, it would store a, um, you know, a million acre feet is, is pretty good sized reservoir. And that water would be there to provide extra water to the Delta when they need it. Uh, so, you know, that, that, and that project has a lot of support. Uh, they've got a mix of state and federal funds and a lot of private funds uh, that are going in, that are investing in this dam. Um, the other project that's going forward is uh, Los Vaqueros Dam. They're going to raise that dam again. And this is a project by Contra Costa Water District in the East Bay. Um, they're a really plucky little water district. Uh, they've been working on this dam. Uh, this dam is a federal project and actually has its roots in something known as CalFed back in, like, the 1990s. It's, like, been a 30-year project. They got tired of the slow pace of the federal project, so they figured out how to build the dam and raise the dam on their own. And now they're going to raise it for a third time. And this is an off-screen reservoir in the Delta, so, you know, there's very little environmental opposition to this project. And Contra Costa Water District has, you know, is partnering with other water agencies in the East Bay to participate in this project, which will just sort of help with water supply re reliability in, you know, in that whole area, in the whole East Bay area. So that's a good project, and that one's moving forward. And then there's another one in the Bay Area. You know, the Bay Area is really getting hammered hard. It's, well, the Santa Clara, San Jose area, because they built a dam, Anderson Dam, and it was found to have seismic issues. So they, while they were planning the seismic fix, they could only keep a certain amount of water in the in the reservoir, and now they are fixing the dam, going in to do what they need to do. And so they've had to drain that reservoir. So this is a, a hard year for uh, to be in a drought because their water supply is, is really hindered by not having this dam. And there's another dam that they're building that's an approved project from the Prop 1 fund um, called Pacheco Reservoir, that if it were built today, it would be very useful to them, but it's not. Um, and this is one of those projects where they had some preliminary documents and they were able to get their funding, but as they w went in and did their ge geotechnical surveys, they found that there's earthquake issues. So it like just about doubled the cost of the reservoir. So mm -hmm. they're really having to figure out now how they're going to pay for that. Although I will note, we are talking San Jose, we're talking the Silicon Valley, where Google and other businesses, the high-profile businesses work. So um, I'm not too worried that they will not, that they won't find the funds to build that reservoir, because it would really help them out, especially in a year like this. And, you know, they're pretty good at that. So that, those are sort of the projects that are uh, the, the dams that are being built. There are some groundwater projects that are also under construction, but, you know, none of these are going to come online 
anytime soon. I think the earliest one, the article said, is a groundwater project in Sacramento that will be online in 2024. But just about everything else, we're looking at uh, 2030 before they'll come online. Wow. And that that is just a function of the time it takes to plan a project that involves moving a lot, a lot of earth. Well, I want, to see, I, want to see, I want to see what Silicon Valley does because they need water for the microprocessing equipment, I mean, devices that they make up there for all the wafer fabs and things like that. And even though most of them are very liberal, it's going to hurt their business unless they're going to plan to take it overseas. Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to, just for the population, it's going to be tough because they're down, they're down that reservoir. So um, it's going to be a painful year for them, or probably a painful couple of years, because, you know, they're looking like La Nina is on its way, so next year may not be any better. We may be a, have another dry year, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Quick, last comment. Quick last comment from you, Chris. So, you know, is there any sense, optimism looking forward? I mean, from an infrastructure project standpoint, we've had this legislation 12 years now in the making, languished in the halls of the state government. What's your sense of progress looking forward? You know, they're moving forward according to the milestones that were sort of set out in the legislation, you know, and I understand it's frustratingly slow and it would be very helpful. Um, you know, I I don't, I there's, there's just no such thing as a fast dam project. Well, there's no. a fast dam project, but not a fast dam project. It's Got a it. damn problem to have. It's a damn problem. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, Chris, thanks thanks for joining. And uh, we, we appreciate you coming on every week and giving us the latest and greatest. Um, it's great to hear the news. It's it's sad to hear what the news is, <laughs> is, is the problem. And, and you're right. Nothing, nothing to do construction, I, I, I assume, all over the country is going to take just as long to do it in any other place. It's just the regulations are killing everybody. and I, I don't know. But, but but it also goes beyond regulations. It takes time to do those geotechnical surveys and yep. plan stuff out, you know. I mean, yes, there's the regulations, but there's just, it, you know, it takes time, and you need to be careful, especially in earthquake country. Yes. You know, you don't, you don't want to create a hazard. No, to, no. No, we we don't we don't need that here in California. We got enough issues that we got to deal with. So anyway, thanks for coming on. Just to tell our our listeners, please go to mavensnotebook.com. Uh, it's a great place to become a subscriber and or a sponsor or both. It's a great way to get uh, information on water all over California and other places. Chris, Chris Davy and I get it every single day on our computer first thing when it crops up. And it's a great source. Um, I even I even take some of that material that uh, Chris writes up and go to meetings with it <laughs> so, I, so I can sound intelligent, but it's uh, it's a good stuff. It's good stuff to have. We appreciate it. All right. Good evening, everybody. Take good care, evening. Chris. You have a good one. Um, you too. Thank you. Uh, we have uh, a feature that we've been doing with the chair chairman of Kellogg's Garden Products, which is Ms. Kathy Kellogg-Johnson. And uh, we get a lot of questions from our listeners and stuff, and we have a little segment called What's the Scoop About Soil? So uh, let's go to that, Chris. That should be interesting. You got it.
It's time for the most important part of your garden. What's the scoop on soil? Your host is Kathy Kellogg-Johnson, Chairman of the Board of Kellogg Garden Products, an industry leader in all organic soil products. All right, well, uh, welcome back, Kathy Kellogg. We have a question this time from Donna. Donna's in Reseda, California, and Donna asked, what's the difference between potting soil and potting mix? I love this because can I share a secret that I wouldn't tell to anybody but the listeners to your show? You bet. We, we call it whatever the garden center or the nursery wants us to call it. <laughs> there, there is no distinction between a potting mix and a potting soil. But interestingly, the um, potting soil should not have any soil in them. They are truly, and potting mixes, are they're soil-less mixes. In other words, the ingredients are largely, well, they're all organic, and they are able to be decomposed, things like arbor fines and uh, manures. We mix together guano, bark, and a variety of soft and hard woods that are composted in order to stabilize them and, and and balance the carbon-nitrogen ratio that we mature and then we, these materials and then combine them with vermiculite, perlite, and it, it compares with um, a peat potting soil or a core-based potting soil. At one, at one time, we had over 27 different blends of potting mixes designed to go in a container. The, the industry calls... Um, calls these materials just like they have a category for soil amendments and for mulch and for potting soil and for garden soil the names you might recall since chris you have so much time in this industry the names evolve with what people identify with and even the names are different for example in georgia than they are in southern california so the categorization of how people refer to their mixes um, is quite regional and actually quite different around the world. The fact of the distinction, potting mix and potting soil are really the same thing, and neither container mixes should really ever have soil in them. It is important, though, that you match your container soil to the plants that you're growing. For example, succulent and cactus mix truly do have a sand component in their mix that is ideal for the root systems of succulents. Azalea camellia should be potted in an acidic mix. So either a shade loving mix or an acid loving mix or just an azalea camellia mix. But that indicates that the um, company has made the soil with a pH that's less than 6.5 that is ideal for that plant to thrive. So always, it's a great idea to match your plant with the with the uh, media. Okay, Leah, the next uh, listener we have comes all the way across the country to the East Coast from Englewood, New Jersey. And her question is, should I buy purchased soil or make my own? Well, I love this question. Thank you, Cheryl, from Englewood, New Jersey. You know, it kind of depends. How much do you value your time? 
I've seen one analysis that puts uh, the effort that they put into making a homemade mix with uh, buying individual ingredients like vermiculite and perlite and taking a homemade compost, that saved the person after it was all said and done, it saved a person about $20 to make their own soil. Um, I think that was, you know, compared to $500 versus $480. So something to the effect of how much do you value your time to make your own soil at home? Secondly, soil at home would be made from what ingredients you have just hanging around. And as I mentioned in another segment, soil that goes into a container doesn't contain any soil. Forgive our industry for being a little bit confusing. It is always a soilless mix. So the ingredients that are chosen by those you know, professional companies that are composting and um, assembling the ingredients to care for a plant inside of a container, those ingredients have been subject to 131 degrees Fahrenheit for a minimum of 15 days during which the materials are turned at least five times. So the oxygen, the carbon, the moisture, and the nitrogen have been balanced over a period of at least 90 days. Also, that process of subjecting the materials to 131 degrees has been shown to kill any plant pathogens and shown to kill weed seeds. So a homemade mix, which I've done myself, sometimes carries the weeds that you threw in the compost pile into your containers. And that's not a good result. So we, we're big fans of buying store-bought soil. But then again, we're a manufacturer of store-bought soil. So I would always use a store-bought mix for your containers. And I also would always utilize the compost that you make with food scraps in your soils. The, uh, something a lot of people don't know is when even when you've diligently composted every bit, every banana peel and every orange peel and everything that you've pulled from your kitchen, it really doesn't result in a lot of compost. You have trouble keeping up with an active garden uh, by composting. Composting is really a waste reduction technique that yields a really cool soil but often it doesn't match the demands of your garden. So always do it, but just don't expect to be making all of your own soil from your own kitchen scraps. All right. Well, that was, uh, that was good information. And uh, we thank Kathy and the callers uh, for putting in those questions. We're going to take a little commercial break, and we'll be back for the second half with our featured guest, Cassie Tovis, and uh, we're very excited to talk to her, and I got some great questions for her, because I like what she does. I'm very interested in that personally. So stick around for the second half. We'll be back in just a moment. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yucaipa. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. 
an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project, so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock, because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you, they really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. KCAA Loma Linda. Well, all right, everybody. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Radio Show program. This is Chris Davey, your co-host, along with Rob Starr. Thanks for sticking with us. You will be glad you did because our next guest is just terrific, as Rob introduced right before we faded out for the commercial break. Her name is Kathy Tovis. I'm sorry, Cassie Tovis. She represents IDC Precision Irrigation there up there in Castroville, California, one of my favorite parts of the state right between... Um, Santa Cruz and Salinas, a beautiful place to be. Uh, Kathy is from uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. She has an agricultural systems management degree there. Um, we're going to have a little arm wrestling, Kathy, because I'm from the real Cal Poly down here in Pomona, from landscape architecture. I can hear you chuckling in the background already. But listen, let me tell you well, something. She's, she's hanging up the phone now. <laughs> she is probably hanging up the phone. Kathy, hang in there. So uh, Kathy is, um, uh, as I said, represents IDC Precision Irrigation. These guys are on the very forefront of technology. She just completed an article in uh, Irrigation Today, Today magazine. So if you haven't had a chance to uh, to read that, please go ahead and do it. Just uh, email us here at uh, waterzoneatoro.com, and we will give you, show your connection how to get to that. So uh, Cassie is famous because she's an expert in substrate farming, and I know that's something right along the lines of what uh, Rob is interested in, in, too. So Cassie, let me welcome you to the Water Zone Radio Show program. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. 
You're welcome. More than more than anything, we kind of start off every every uh, interview by asking people, "Hey, how did you get into this business? Right? What was the impetus that got you that got you in this direction that started you in the uh, career that you have now?" Yeah, I mean, had you have asked me back when I started college what I'd be doing, this would not be it. Um, I originally was going to school for mechanical engineering, and then after being there for about a year or so, I realized that I really enjoyed being out in the field with customers, um, helping people solve problems a lot more than just doing the math portion of that. So I, I went ahead and changed my major over to the ag systems management major in their grade department. Um, and then from there, I got an internship where I was working to do irrigation design for a local irrigation company down in Santa Maria. Ended up working there after I graduated, took over store management for a couple of their local stores, and then later transitioned on to do design and sales for the company I work with now. And I've been doing that for the last three and a half, four years. And it certainly sounds like you're glad you did, right? Even even though we come from com- competing schools. Yeah, no, definitely. It's been a it's been a great a great learning curve. I've kind of got to see all sides of our industry, which is a lot of fun and, and makes you be a, a better resource for people. Well, let's dig right into uh, the the uh, context here, the conversation. Uh, substrate farming, and I, all, all pun intended in the let's dig in thing. So is this is this a new process, Cassie? Is this a new technology? How long has it been around? Yeah, so I my first substrate project that I ever worked on was back in 2012 down in the Oxnard area, and that was kind of when it was first breaking into the fresh berry market here in California. However, substrate growing for greenhouses, hothouses, you know, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, that's been around for quite some time. And if you look to overseas, I mean, they've been doing this since like 2000, that they haven't been growing strawberries in the ground since then. So we're a little bit behind on the times, I guess you could say, but it's definitely up and coming and, and continuing to grow here, that's for sure. So going a little deeper into it, can you describe what what it's made from? What is the media options or different materials? Is it organic? Or are there any risks with any of these things? Yeah, so there's a lot of different options out there. I would say your kind of most traditional for anything that's still being grown outdoor is a cocoa core peat moss blend of some sort. And people kind of pick and choose, you know, manufacturers they like or which blend they like the best. Um, We've also had a new kind of break in with uh, some people looking to use almond husks to be able to use that for the media and kind of reuse some local resources. And then you also have um, for more of the indoor greenhouse type growing what they call rock wool, which is actually like a molten rock that's kind of spun into a cotton candy texture and then compressed down into these little cubes that they use for um, growing. However, the organic side is a little bit different. There's kind of a toss-up of some people saying it can be organic because it's being grown in a material that's organic, but I know there's some uh, kind of legislation going back and forth, forth as to whether or not it can still be considered organic if it's not actually grown in soil versus a media. Mm. We could, you know, we, we traditionally think of substrate farming as being, you know, always indoors. Is it always indoors or is it, is it used outside as well, Cassie? Yes, it is used outside. So typically you're going to think indoor or greenhouse growing. However, we're doing a lot more in the berry market um, for outdoor. So grow, it's being grown in hoop houses, so not completely open, still has some protection there but grown in, you know, potted plant type scenarios for strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, all those kind of crops. How's, how's the water applied? Is it, uh, you know, let, that's kind of 
getting into the details here, but you mentioned potted plants and stuff like that. Are the other are there other applications like troughs and you know wetted mats and that kind of stuff? Yeah, most traditionally, you're going to look at either a potted plant or a trough. The strawberries particularly are typically grown or can be grown in more of a trough type scenario or a bag. For irrigating those, we're typically using drip irrigation of some sort, whether that be drip tubing or drip tape or actual punch-on emitters with assembly manifolds and different things like that to direct the water exactly where we want it in the plant. Is it is the kind of stuff that we're talking about? Is it like a you know one time use and uh, single use thing, or can it be used over and over again? I mean, rotationally in crops. Yeah, so I would say initially when we first started, it was kind of a one and done. Most people used it one time, then moved on and and replanted. But we are seeing now that people are starting to, as they get more comfortable, start experimenting a little bit more. So we've got a lot of strawberry growers that are reusing their bags multiple times before they're having to actually get rid of them and that's obviously going to be a huge cost savings for them so it's it's not 100 percent yes reusable but it is transitioning that way a lot more let me let me ask you a three-part question in regards to irrigation so what what types of irrigation are you using? do you use drip and, and and then do you have a water holding capacity and or do you irrigate to fuel capacity and then dry cycle i mean how does that all fit together. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this thing for lots of reasons, but I think it's, it's, it's really the, the wave of the future <laughs> for, for, for farming. Yeah. yeah, so drip is definitely the most common, and we will have some scenarios where we use overhead sprinklers of some kind for propagation and different things, especially in strawberry crops. Mm-hmm. Um, it really comes down to the grower's preference on a lot of things of how they like to irrigate, but most common is you're going to irrigate to kind of a field capacity with a certain portion of drain that you're targeting from the plant. And then we're doing a dry down cycle and a lot of frequent irrigations. The biggest thing is that you're taking a plant and putting in, let's say, a seven liter pot now. It's got a very small capacity for water holding that that crop's going to use. So having multiple pulse irrigations all day long becomes a really important thing. Well, does it make, does it make the crops healthier? Because I know, I know there's places, uh, I forget the name, it was Fred, I can't remember the last name, who puts these in these gigantic uh, warehouses that are what they call modified atmosphere packaging, and they store them, and they can stay for longer periods of time before they release them to the public. So does, does, does your process make them healthier to begin that, that, that uh, journey? Yeah, so any good grower, I mean... There's people who are really good at what they do, no matter kind of what you give them. So there's definitely some factors that make this easier. There's a lot more capability for data collection and data management where you can make quicker and better decisions for the crop versus having to wait to see what actually happens with the crop. You can use the data to drive those decisions. And we see with that, that really helps steer the crop, be able to, you know, flower or fruit at the right time that you're looking for and help with a lot of those factors. There's a ton of questions that we get on the show here, particularly as they relate to conservation, Kathy. Um, do mm-hmm. you do you have any data that shows that there are conservation factors involved in this, like, you know, water-saving stuff? Yeah, so it's always a hard one because at the end of the day, the plant needs a certain amount of water no matter what. Now, 
there's ways that are easier to deliver the water in a more efficient manner. So obviously flood irrigation, you could be very efficient at doing it, but it's a lot harder to be efficient at that. So when you're going to this type of growing style, it allows for you to have a lot more control over how the water and fertilizers are being used. The second part that we're seeing is that now we're able to collect drainage from the plant. So instead of just irrigating into the soil and it leaches down, we're now able to grab that water that would be leaching and do something with it. So what we're working on with a lot of growers is disinfecting that water to make sure there's no disease or anything else that could harm the plant and then blending that back in at some rate. So we're able to reuse the water and the nutrients to have, you know, as minimal discharge as we possibly could off the property. Have you seen any, any uh, good signs, any progress from farmers who are using this already in ways that, that speed up the growing process at all or improve yield? Yes, we have seen a lot of people that do have improved yields, which really I think comes back to that data collection and ability to make better choices quicker. Um, it doesn't mean that you're just going to be guaranteed them right off the gate, but we have seen a lot more of an improvement there. The other thing is you can have some of this off-cycle growing and different things like that because the plants are movable now. They're not just stuck in one spot. So we can do different things that will allow for you to get better off-cycle production, um, you know, better income to the growers because they have a good product at a time of the year where it's typically not available. Yeah, plus you're indoors all the time, right? I mean, I you know, I haven't, I've, I've been oftentimes thought about I should, you know, read about the effects of heliotropism and growing 24 hours a day instead of having, you know, a day-night cycle. Um, I don't know if you'd make a comment of that. Uh, uh, in, in any experience you've had? You know, I haven't seen a lot of people that are doing the 24-hour growth cycle personally that I've worked with. Uh, a lot of them are still, you know, doing a day-night cycle on most everything. All right. So, you know, I, I, I'm interested in, in the things that you do, but also the hydroponic vertical farms and how different they could be to your thing. I know I, I look at I look at some of these things that every day is a perfect day inside a sealed climate controlled room. And, um, you know, depending on the crop, some, one, some of the modular grow units can yield, I believe, 17 times more harvest than conventional farmland using 95 percent water. In addition, no chemical or herbicide or pest control products are needed. So how does that compare to, to that technology where you can literally grow it into a warehouse? You don't worry about the, the temperature, any, any, any uh, pests, you know, bugs, any contamination. Um, you, you can control the temperature. You can control artificial sunlight. How does that all play into that, that factor with the substrate uh, process? Yeah, so I've gotten to tour and work with quite a few different indoor vertical farming and different startup companies that are trying out new technology. And it's it's super interesting what they're doing because you have this ability to now, you know, grow year round, have more crop cycles than you typically would. And like you said, completely control the environment. You can make it be exactly what you want for the plant, drive right. certain factors. Um, so there's a lot going on there. The other big thing with that is, tying it into your urban areas. So being able to now grow crops that you would typically have to truck in for your food industry, now you can grow them there right in the heart of the city and be able to cut down on trucking costs, uh, everything that goes into that as well, which is a really big kind of cool thing to think of moving forward. I know Chris will probably ask you, I'll let him do this on automation because I, I got to believe that's got to be a big deal with all of this processing. 
Yeah, you must have been yeah. clairvoyant there. <laughs> <laughs> Just came to me. <laughs> yeah, so definitely automation is key. I mean, when you're looking at your more traditional outdoor growing in substrate with automation, yeah, you're having to pulse irrigate 20 plus times a day. You're not going to pay for someone to be running around trying to open close these valves all day long and hit the targets right. It just isn't going to happen. So automation becomes a really key role there as well as how you're delivering the nutrients because you have this small water holding capacity. You need to make sure you deliver the nutrients accurately and when the plant needs them. When you take that to the indoor side, same thing. I mean, you've got a lot of small valve groups, typically a lot of craft irrigation to tailor it to specific plants, different things like that that are going on that being able to control the irrigation side is really important as well as we work into controlling the climate side. So being able to use what the irrigation does or what the plant is telling you that it's need, it needs and then control the environment off of that. Cassie, do you have a tag on like kind of how many farmers are adopting this new technology? I mean, are you seeing a big uptake of this or is it slow to, uh, to, to be adopted? You know, it is speeding up a lot more, I would say. There is definitely a change in what your kind of average farmer is, I think, because there's this new younger generation coming into taking over family farms and different things that really are used to technology and more welcoming to it. Um, so initially, there was definitely a lot smaller of a growth. But over the last two, three years, I mean, it's just been skyrocketing for us that we 90% of the customers we talk to, automation is part of what they're looking for. Is there, is there a special capability required or some training that, uh, that's available that can, be, that can be provided to these guys who want, to, who want to look at this? Yeah, so definitely there is training that's going to be needed. You're going to have to learn how to understand that platform as well as now understand different equipment in the field. Everybody knows if a valve doesn't work, it's because the valve broke. Well, now you have all these electronics that are also on there, and you have to understand how they work, what they do to be able to troubleshoot problems. So there's definitely a bigger training factor needed, and we're really big at trying to push people to say, make sure that you partner with good manufacturers, good local distributors that have the support that you're going to need because you will need it, and that they're local and available to be able to come out and help troubleshoot these problems and help train your team initially so that you can deal with a lot less headaches moving forward. So who would you target or suggest to target towards this, this manufacturing process or the growing process? What what crops are the best suited for that, which, which you've tried so far? Yeah, so, I mean, right now what we're seeing mostly is all of your fresh berry market. Obviously, the cannabis market is a huge thing right now that's definitely in there. And then all of your microgreens, um, some veggie crops that are starting to kind of go into that route for indoor growing, vertical farming, those types of things. Um, so where, where do you believe technology, aside what's currently happening today, what do you see that needs to be put in place further to enhance the, the growing seasons and the repetitiveness and, and, and boost the crops? Because obviously that's how people, I mean, the business is, it's like a restaurant. The more people you, you turn around every single night, the more people are eating at the restaurant, you get more cash coming in. So you really want to do the same thing for the, for the crops. You know, you want to get get them, grow them, get them out, put the new ones in, and start rolling again. How 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 does that process going to be enhanced later on? Some technology that you think needs to be in place that is that isn't here yet. Yeah, so I think again, the training thing is going to be a big factor. Finding the right people to work in these facilities that are uh, willing to learn all the new technology and help every 
everybody else and manufacturers start to develop things that they need. At the end of the day, our goal is to make the growers happy because they know how to grow the plant. So we want as much feedback from them to be able to change what we're doing or how we're doing it to make it more efficient and user-friendly for them. There's a lot of technology out there. I mean, if you've gone to the farm show down in Solari for the last three, four years, you see 20 new people every year and half of them are gone the following year and you got another new 20. So there's a ton of technology out there, but making sure that you're partnering with the companies that are going to stick around and make it through all of these transitions with everybody. And when it comes to the indoor growing, there's a couple players that are big names out there that are already in that space because they did greenhouse controls. So it's very similar to indoor growing controls. But I think we need, definitely need to find a better partnership between these, you know, HVAC companies and lighting companies that are all working in the indoor space to be able to integrate better with the irrigation technology because the two require such a close partnership. Agreed. So where, where, where do you see the future of water? Because that's going to be the big deal in growing anything. Where, where do you see that, especially in California, since that's where you're working? Uh, do you see Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, water is definitely something that we need. Um, as much as we in California say that we don't want it to rain, because we love our beautiful weather, we need the rain. <laughs> um, so water is a hot commodity. And I think the biggest thing on a lot of these facilities is being able to reuse as much as you can. So collect the leachate that's coming out of the plants, reuse that water somehow, as well as with all your HVAC equipment that's now be, being able to collect the evapotranspiration from the plants, recondense that down and try to reuse that water as well. So as much as we can pull back out of the facilities to reuse is really going to be key moving forward. Do you, do you propose putting recycled, mini recycling uh, facilities on, on, on the premises? Because I know like we've talked to people from the city of San Francisco and the water department and all new large buildings that they build, they have to, they have to have a way of uh, cleaning the water that, uh, that's wasted and recycling it back into the building. Is that something that farmers are going to have to start to do? Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the indoor growing, I mean, a lot of the indoor stuff on the, on the larger scale is a lot of cannabis because of that, they get the most regulations on them, which is then going to trickle down to any traditional ag that goes into that same growing style. Uh, Mm -hmm. We definitely see that they are required to now be able to, monitor what water is coming off the property, report back to what it is, um, find a way to be able to reuse it, all of these different things. So that's definitely going to be something that's going to be a requirement moving forward. Uh, what, what do you think? Go, go ahead, Chris. Uh, sorry, Rob. I got bounced off there for a second <laughs> right here. So I don't know if you talked about uh, cost at all, but I, you know, before, before we run out of too much time, is this, you know, traditionally is this uh, uh, cost uh, higher or lower than traditional kind of irrigation testing? Yeah, it's definitely going to be a higher initial infrastructure cost. You have a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in, a lot of equipment that needs to be bought. So there is going to be a higher cost up front. Now, the goal is that with that comes with some labor savings, ground preparation savings, potentially higher yields, more crop cycles, all of these other benefits. But there is a big cost up front that you have to be ready to kind of take on initially. That also, everyone wants to say, well, I have automation. I don't need people anymore. And you might not need as many people, but you're probably going to need a higher level person. It's not going to be the traditional person that was out in the field 
you know, running around in their gator, opening and closing valves. You're going to need somebody that has that ability to use the computer, integrate with different technologies and all of that. So even though it might be less, they're probably going to be more expensive. Well, we're, we're nearing the end. we got to go to our uh, NBC News Hour coming up. But, but Cassie, I, I'm telling you, I'm really interested. Maybe maybe someday we can get the opportunity to come visit with you in person and, and, and even videotape it so we can show it to our, our, our audience. This, uh, this, to me, is, is the wave of the future that we need to go, not only here, but all over the world. And also like to see things where we're growing crops with, uh, with uh, salt water. So. Yeah. I, I, I do yeah, have definitely. one more question. I do have one more question, though. I mean, what do you, you know, do you, talking about the future, do you see this ever being applicable to broader irrigation applications, um, you know, field crops and things like that? Are people starting to think about that even? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily substrate per se. I mean, we have people that are growing lettuce and aquaponics in, in different areas like that or, or herbs in an aeroponic situation. So that's already kind of transitioned. But the automation portion alone for your traditional row crops growers is becoming something that's more prevalent and we're getting asked about a lot more frequently. Right. Hey, hey, listen, in the last 30 seconds we got left, where, if people want to know more information, Cassie, where can they go? Are there any resources available for our listeners? Yeah, so if you want to go to our website, which is idcsupply.com, we've got a lot of information on there. We do blog posts very frequently that give a lot of good information. We're all also on Instagram, so pretty much anyone who works at our company, underscore IDC. We post a lot of work that we're doing, just information, quick little bits that you can get. And then there's also the CAIA, which is the California Irrigation Association, as well as the Irrigation Association, that both have a lot of great resources, a lot of great events that you can actually attend, meet people in person, as well as hear a lot of the legislative stuff that's going on. Great. Well, thank you, Cassie. It was a pleasure. And as I told you before the show, uh, it's an easy conversation with you. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely and want to do it again. So you have a great weekend. Thanks for being a guest on our show. And we'll talk to you later. Yeah, thank you guys so much. You're welcome. Bye, Cassie. All right, for our listeners, thanks for tuning in today. And we'll be back next week. And the most important thing that Chris and I always tell you to do, please help keep our planet, planet blue. Yeah, we say it a little different, but it's the same thing. Keep that planet blue so we can have green. Thank you, people. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. 2.3 FM.